Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I was really, really torn on what to preach. That isn't uncommon, but uh, one of the reasons is because Lou asked me yesterday, he said, no, it it was Thursday night, he said, let me ask you something. He said, what's the Lord been speaking to you about the blood? And I said, well, actually, I just spoke on that. Matter of fact, I spoke on it the last two weekends, because last weekend I wasn't here. I was at a different church, and, uh, which he found intriguing, because he said, the, the move of God we're entering into is the communion move, where the blood is going to be applied to the nation. And uh, so I found that very intriguing, and I, I want to finish what I started two weeks ago on the blood. Uh, but it is Valentine's Day weekend. Uh, you know, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. And so I want to preach on relationships this morning. We'll get back to the blood later, uh, I think. So, um, but we're going to look at relationships. This is, it's just a good time of year. And it's not irrelevant. Uh, I hope we all understand that relationships are not some side issue. It's not irrelevant to the move of God, the kingdom of God, to revival, uh, One of the things that burns in my heart as a pastor is that we not only see a move of God, but we learn to maintain, that we learn to secure the ground that we gain. It would have been, oh, I don't know, probably five, six years ago. I'm notorious for saying the other day, and it was 10 years ago. But uh, it, was, it was the other day sometime, sometime in the last 10 years. Uh, the Lord spoke to me in June. He kept saying to me, will you give me three weeks in July? Will you give me three weeks in July? And so I asked some of the intercessors, would you jump in, and let's do a 21-day fast in July. And I want to tell you, a 21-day fast in July is better than in January, because it's not cold out in July. I question the wisdom of my pastoral appeal. Every year, about one week into the fast, I'm so cold. And uh, so we did that, that, uh, that fast, and uh, several of the Latinos jumped in, and what made it really a great fast was they promised to make a genuine Mexican meal at the end, and we broke it at my house. Oh, my goodness. It was glorious. I just felt the glory end of the room when I talked about it. And, uh, but during that fast, I don't remember... Much else about the fast other than the meal we ate to break it. Uh, other than this, I'm walking through my living room and that great theological resource, the History Channel, was on. And it was a documentary about Genghis Khan. And they talked about how Genghis Khan conquered, he was a Mongol warrior, warlord, and they said he conquered. I, 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 did, I found this interesting. I thought this was, uh, I thought... Alexander the Great took this title, but it wasn't. It was Genghis Khan. He conquered more physical territory than any man in human history. His domain was across a greater geographical area than any man in human history. And then they made this comment. They said, but when he died, his his, uh, kingdom just disappeared because he was a great warrior, but a poor, it was a great warrior, but a poor governor. He didn't know how to govern well. And when I heard that, man, it hit my heart. And the Lord spoke to me. And he said, that is how my people are. He said, there are many wandering revivalists 
and homeless intercessors who have stories of great battles won, but nothing to leave their children. When he said that, man, it hit my heart. I was so grieved because I don't want just stories of outpourings. I want to see something come out of that. I want to see something established. Matter of fact, the reason I wanted to pastor is I worked for Teen Challenge for 14 years. I loved it. It was glorious. I would never change. I wouldn't trade anything for those years at Teen Challenge. I got to see men like Roger McKim come in a broken young man and now he's an elder in his house. And man, I I just love that. But what grieved me is at most I'd get to be with those guys nine months and then they'd move on. And I wanted to pastor people. I wanted to see their kids and their grandkids. And I wanted to see something established that would be generational. And so that's what the church is intended to be. God wants us to be able to establish something that lasts. But that demands relational acumen. Much of what we struggle with as Christians is not in and of itself spiritual, it's relational. I think I might have said this recently, that much of what we call demonic oppression is actually the fruit of dysfunctional relationships. Now, that doesn't negate the part the enemy plays in it. It just defines his access point. The enemy will attack in the area of our relationships. And that's why it's so very important for us to learn to relate with others in a healthy manner. What God does in us as character must translate to something between us as culture, relationship. The way to keep the gains of yesterday's victory is through culture. That something is established between us. That we learn to translate what God has done in us to something between us. And that's the way that thing spreads and that's the way it becomes solidified. You say character is what he does in us. Culture is what he does between us. And if it starts within us but doesn't affect between us, it dies in us. I think it was E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary statesman. He, he wrote a lot of great things. But in his book, the one Papa Jack used to always push, uh, The Unshakable Kingdom, The Unchanging Man, I think it was called. He, he made a statement in that book. He said, if the kingdom, he said that if the kingdom doesn't start with the individual, it never really starts. But if it ends with the individual, it truly ends. So what he was saying is that the kingdom of God first impacts a person, but it, as it grows, if it doesn't begin to impact others and the culture around us, then it, it really has died. And what he's touching on is actually what the Lord was speaking to me through that great theological resource, the History Channel. That often what God does in us at the altar dies as soon as we get home or dies on the job because we don't learn to translate that transformation and hold the line as we get into relationships. Matter of fact, that we, were, we did a supernatural school of ministry down in Burlington last weekend, 
And uh, one of the sessions we were talking about was this. And I was, I was telling them that often what happens is that God does a work in us and we don't, we don't hold the line. Some of you have heard me say this before. The very people that pray you into your encounter will often resist the encounter when it begins to manifest in your life. And it's not because they're necessarily against what's happening in your life. It's just change. There's an old saying that everybody likes, hates change except leaders. That is not true. Everybody hates change, including leaders. It's just leaders get to process it before they make it public. And so by the time they've gone public, they're all for it. Because they already had opportunity to process it. Then everybody else has opportunity to process it. I remember one time I complained to the Lord. Uh, it was none of you. This was many years ago. Okay? <laughs> but I said to the Lord, I said, God, why don't these people just go with it? And I was complaining. I didn't realize I was praying because he answered me. He said, that's why you're here. He said, if everybody just did what I wanted them to, I wouldn't need leaders. And what he was insinuating is the resistance is your job security. So quit whining, you know? It's your job to lead through this and sell this thing to get every people to be convinced of what I had to work on you in private over. And so the fact is, there's always a relational component to revival, to a move of God, to encounters, to what God wants to do. God will always start in us. He does something in us so that he can do something between us and establish that thing. So then as a group, he can do something through us. But where most moves of God die is not at the altar. It's God does something in us, but we don't establish it between us. We succumb to the confrontation and the pressure and the, the, just the relational conflict is all this kind of sorts itself out. We have a new way of doing things. And this is notoriously true of marriage. I, I've, I've been in ministry a long time. And I'm telling you, I've seen it again and again and again where a spouse will pray their, their spouse into an encounter with God and then they resist the very thing when it arrives. They end up rejecting the answer to their own prayer because they were thinking it was going to manifest in these ways, but it was also going to manifest in these ways. They were thinking it just meant they were going to be easier to live with. But in some ways, they're going to be harder to live with because this person was going to all of a sudden take up the space they were supposed to be occupying previously. A wife who has had to take the lead in the home and cries out for a godly husband, and all of a sudden he has an encounter with God, and they thought, oh, that's just going to make him kinder. He'll want to take me out to dinner more and really appreciate all I do. And that should be part of it, gentlemen. But the other part of it is he's going to begin to occupy the space he was supposed to be occupying before that you, are, you were occupying because he wasn't. And that means you have to let go of some things so he can grab onto some things. And that's where the conflict is introduced. And so this is why relationships are crucial to a move of God. If we're going to move into what God has for us, we've... Put it this way, the only constant in the kingdom is change. 
That's why every prophet that comes through, you're in an hour of transition. Listen, you're, you'll have a life of transition. We're always on the move in the kingdom. And what that means is that we're always having to adjust to one another as God is doing a work. And in fact, it's often the work God is doing in those nearest to you that is the catalyst for the work he's going to do in you. I've, I've learned a very troubling thing about God. I've learned a number of troubling things about him. And he doesn't seem troubled that I'm troubled. But I've learned a troubling thing about God that he will use the character flaws in other people that he does not endorse, by the way, on me. While he's working it out of them, he's very practical. While it's still in them, I'm going to use it on you while it's on its way out. And he'll use their character flaws that are in them to work on the character flaws in me. Because God is after these things in our life. And so, in a very real sense, you can't grow alone. There's very little growth that you can achieve alone. That's why God has not called us to be in a monastery. Shut off from society. I, I believe there are seasons where God will call certain people in that manner. But even there, in the monastery, there's other monastic people that are going to rub you wrong. God has called He's not called us as a me, he's called us as a we. Because I need you to grow. Because there are things in my life I don't even recognize until you bump up against them. I've said it many times. I was a very patient, amiable person until I married Kathy. And I couldn't believe it was her fault. I mean, all of a sudden this thing came out of me that I didn't know was there. It had to be her fault because it wasn't there before. No, no. There's, I had an irritating friend that we started a ministry together. He, had, he wasn't irritating, but this statement that he hung on his door was. It said, the foot that kicks over the barrel is not responsible for the contents, but rather for merely revealing them. <laughs> Just before I married Kathy, the Lord spoke to me one day in prayer, and he said, Kathy will be the finger with which I probe your heart. I thought, man, Lord, that doesn't sound romantic at all. <laughs> I wasn't signing up for that. You know, it was all the smoochy baby, you know, all that. You know, she's going to serve me. I'm going to be the hero in her life. <laughs> it's Valentine's Day. <laughs> the fact is, relationships are the way that God gets at us. So here, let, let's, let's tie this in with a verse so you know I'm being scriptural, okay? Let, let's quote a verse. Way back in the book of Genesis, at the beginning. Genesis means beginnings. God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I always find it comical that God created for six days, and on the sixth day, he creates man. Day one, he creates, he works, he said, it's good. Day two, he creates, he works, it's good. Day three, day four, day five, it's good, it's good, it's good. Day six, he makes a man, he said, it ain't good. <laughs> and the lady said, amen. God said, it is not good for man to be alone. This, this is a, a fascinating thing to me. 
God, hit God's relationship with Adam, where literally Adam would hear him come in the, through the woods. Here comes God. It's time for our walk. What an amazing experience. But that level of relationship was not enough. Don't tell me, well, I've got God. I don't need people. You don't have what Adam had. And what Adam had was not enough. God said it is not good for man to be alone. Now, ladies, this applies to you too, okay? Because woman was inside a man at the time. She was in there. It was a package deal. And so God states that we need other people. The, the scenario through which God brought the woman to man, is, it's a fascinating thing. So what God did is he made the statement to Adam. Now, if you look in the text, it says it's not good for man to be alone. And so God caused all the animals to come before him and he named them. It's like, I, I, what, you know, that's kind of almost ADHD. It's like, squirrel, what does that have to do with anything? No, there's a, there's, a, there's a reason to the passage. What it's saying is that God saw need in Adam. He's alone. So what is God going to do? He's going to awaken an awareness within Adam to his own need. Adam didn't know. He's clueless. Ladies, we're, we're often that way, okay? We're clueless. And so God has to awaken us to the reality. And so what he did is he paraded the animals two by two. And Adam began to realize, wow, the rhino has a wife. The ape has a wife. The elephant has a wife. I don't have a wife. And it says that a deep sleep came on Adam. The Hebrew, it means, it's like a languid passivity as if Adam was looking and looking and searching and becoming aware. And at the end of himself, he couldn't find it. And at, at, at the end of his search, he went into a deep sleep. And it was out of his rest that God pulled something out of him formed it into something he would be attracted to, presented it back to him, and then said, become one with it. And it really is a beautiful picture of redemption that you and I don't even know our need. The only re- it, there, there's an old statement, I think it was Martin Luther said, it takes God to love God. The fact that any of us have any bit of hunger for God was his doing in the first place. God awakened that hunger and then presented himself as the answer. But like Like Adam, most of us look to the rhinos and all this other. We're looking in other places, looking for love and all the wrong places. We're looking for the answer to our ravenous hunger in the wrong places. And it's when we come to the end of ourself, out of our rest, God brings the answer. And so he brings Eve to Adam. And it's it's this amazing picture. You know, I think it was uh, Matthew Henry uh, from the famous devotional commentary. Many of you have heard this quote. Uh, he, he's got this devotional commentary. It's very poetic. And he said, God didn't make her out of his foot so he would lord it over her or over his head so she would lord it over him, but under his arms so he'd care for her and near his heart so she'd be dear to him. He pulled her rib out and formed it into a woman and presented back. And it's a beautiful picture until the first argument. Because we think, isn't that beautiful? I mean, the first man and the woman, they were created for each other. They fit together perfect, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It was God. The two would become one. 
But the oneness began with the two-ness. God created out of this rib someone with their own mind, opinions, desires. She thought things should be done this way. He thought things should be done that way. It seemed like a great arrangement until the first argument. And I can't help but think Adam thought, what the heck, Lord? Because the Lord said, become one. And he's thinking, we already were. I had that rib. I never had an argument with my rib until you gave her her own opinion. (laughs) And so seriously, think about it. It begs the question. If the goal was oneness, why did he ever take it out, give her her own opinion, her own ideas, her own desires, and then present it back to him and say, now become one with it. If oneness was the goal, it would have been easier to just leave the rib in his rib cage. So the only conclusion we can come to is the goal was not merely oneness, but it was oneness through selflessness. The only way he could once again become one with his rib was to die to himself. And that's the goal. And we look, you know, I mean, this, this whole story, it's not good for man to be alone. The context is the creation of woman. And we were made for one another. And it is true. We fit together perfectly. Body, soul, and spirit. It's a beautiful thing. But it's not isolated to marriage. It's not good for a person to be alone. And some of you, not by your own choice, you're single. Some of you actually have what is known as the gift of singleness. It's a spiritual gift. It's not one a lot of people pray for. But some people just have it. And it's an amazing thing. And they are a gift to the body of Christ. But even then, they may be single their whole life as a gift of grace. Some are married younger in life, lose their spouse. And there's a grace that comes on them like Anna, who was in the temple for, depending on how you interpret it, 60 to 80 years, fasting and praying for the Messiah. What a gift to the body of Christ. But even then, it's not good for that person to be alone. We need relationships because I'm telling you, there are things in you you don't know are wrong until you bump into other people. There, I'm going to break it to you. You thought your family was functional. You thought you were normal. You thought your family did it the right way until you met us. Believe it, the same's happening on our end. There are things that my family did that were unhealthy that I didn't know. I just thought everybody acted that way. And then I got around other believers and their unhealth was in a different area and their health was in the area where my unhealth was. And it was like God marching the animal kingdom before me and awakening a need within me and making me aware, uh uh-oh, I need to get this fixed. And that's the way the body of Christ works. We need one another. We need relationships. And so isolation is not God's will for your life. We need relationships. Probably the classic verse on isolation, it was said of a man. He was alone, living among the tombs. You know who he was? The Gadarene demoniac. 
Isolation will breed that kind of dysfunction within our mind, becomes an on-ramp for torment. And so we need relationships. And God's desire is that in the little microcosm of marriage, that we become one through mutual submission. That I've got to die to me for us to have that oneness. But that microcosm of marriage is not the only place that principle shows up. It's within the body of Christ. Healthy people can produce that kind of behavior in the workplace. Now, there is, there is this tension we live in, and a necessary tension of where do we die to ourselves and where do we set boundaries. Now, that's a message for another day. But we need to understand that there are, there are limitations of how much you should die because there is a place where Dying to yourself is actually not an act of love. It's an act of enabling someone else's dysfunction. And we've got to have the wisdom from God to discern between the two. Sometimes the most loving thing you can tell someone is no. I was so, yesterday, I, I think it was yesterday, uh, my dad was here for the minister's meeting and someone was asking about our relationship and, and I told him how my dad kicked me out of the house at 16 and their eyebrows went up. And I said, he probably should have done it a year earlier. It was an act of love. And there were other pastors in town that came against my dad. And they told him, listen, I, I would never kick my kids out of the house. He's, the guy told him, he said, if my daughter was sleeping around, I'd buy her birth control. But I'd never put her on the streets. If the prodigal son's father would have operated in that way, he would have never come to himself. I used to tell parents at Teen Challenge, if the prodigal son's father would have given his son a MasterCard, he'd have never hungered to come back home. And so sometimes the most loving thing we do have to do is tell someone no. Jesus stewarded his own limitations. Okay? Even Jesus had physical limitations he, he, he took on the human condition. We were talking about it at offering time. Limitations demand that we allocate those limitations according to an internal value system. I don't know if you caught it yesterday, but Lou, he said this in private and then said it again publicly, and I felt like he, he articulated it so well. I don't know if he articulated it as well in public, but where he was talking about Jesus saying, the harvest is white, beg the Father, and that word akbalo is to hurl people into the, the harvest field, to literally thrust them out. And he said, we read it like it's a suggestion. He said, but what he believes is that there was such a passion in the heart of God, in the heart of Jesus, and he was overwhelmed by the limitation of his physical humanity. And he realized, I can't get the job done in my current state. There needs to be millions of me. And so then he said to his disciples, listen, cry out to heaven and have, them, have Father hurl people into the harvest field. I'd never thought of it that way, of Jesus being aware of his physical limitation and, and that passion erupting in him saying, well, we've got to get this thing done. It's an amazing picture. It's the condition that we have to, we have to put up with in our our limitation. And so when Jesus lived in his, in his humanity, there were times he left all this human need and said no. 
He, he made a statement by his absence. They're looking for him. They're crying out for healing. And he would pull away to a secret place and just spend time with God. That is someone with healthy boundaries. Because you can't give what you don't have. And you can't have if you don't continually replenish. And so we've got to learn to live in that, you know, between the, the need and the source. And just begin to learn to live in that, that tension. And that's true of all of our relationships. And so living selflessly doesn't mean you just let people run roughshod over your life. Because if you don't steward yourself well, you got nothing to give. Remember reading about Robert Murray McShane. He was a great revivalist back, I want to say in the 1700s. May have been in the 1800s. Uh, but he was a tremendously successful revivalist, circuit rider. And uh, on his deathbed, he cried. He was 30 years old when he died. And this, these were his final words, if I understood the story right. At least some of his final words. He said, God gave me a message and a horse to deliver it on. I've killed the horse, and now I can't deliver the message, and died. 30 years old. What he was saying is, I didn't take care of me, so I can't fulfill the call. His passion to reach others destroyed the container that he was supposed to carry it in. And so... Living a selfless life doesn't mean that we destroy ourselves in the process. That's not love. All relationships have a fence line, okay? It's like my wife and I, we share a yard. But even in marriage, there's a fence line in a yard in the sense that I've got to make sure I take care of me if I can, if, for me to take care of her. Friendships have a, have a shared yard and there's a fence line. I remember I had a guy working for me years ago, not at the church, this was long before Heartland. And uh, I told him, I said, you know, I said, I like working with you, but man, it's like we share a backyard and we'll, we'll hang over the fence and I, man, I like your petunias, I like your rose bush and man, your lawn looks great and hey, man, it's good to see you and fist bump and we go back in our house. And I said, the next day I open the door to go into my yard and it's like, wow, that. It's weird, my yard seems smaller. The fence looks like it's been moved. Ah, oh, it just must be me. Next day, I look again. We're hanging over the fence line, but my house seems closer, and you're talking, and we're fist bumping. I'm kind of confused. And then the next day, I try to open my door, and there's a fence there. Can't even get the door open. Because he kept just taking over, and he worked for me. <laughs> and one day, he said in anger, he said, I quit. This was like 30 years ago. He said, I quit, and he walked out. And then came back about two hours like, man, I'm sorry. I said, well, too late. I accepted your resignation. Well, what? Yeah, I said, yeah, accepted your resignation. Because there had been this thing that he couldn't just obey those boundaries. It was the most loving thing I could do for him and to take care of me. You see, if you're not occupying your space, somebody in your life has to. Then when you get touched by heaven and get transformed... All of a sudden, you realize your responsibility to take that space back, and they're going to resist you because you gave it to them. And that's not on them. You can't, you can't afford to get angry. Well, who do you think you are? <laughs> yeah, they've been taking care of your yard. You ought to thank them. And then have a conversation about, okay, now it's time to make this transition. I need to step in in a responsible way. And there's always that conflict 
when that happens relationally. That is the nature of relationships. Now, this is more psychology and sociology, but I'm telling you, our theology will not fix these things, okay? We want a spiritual, oh, the enemy's really coming against me. No, it's your bad decisions previously, and now you've got to stay the course, pay the price for your bad decisions relationally, and earn the trust, and realize there's going to be resistance, but stay humble and talk through these things so you can occupy your yard. And if you spiritualize it, it's not going to help anything. You're just going to demonize the person who's been mowing your yard. And so we need to learn to move into those relationships. And all of this has everything to do with revival. Because in hours of outpourings, people are awakened to their responsibility. And I want to carry my weight in the relationship. Because when you aren't carrying your weight and you're traveling with a group of people, whether it's a family or a church, somebody's carrying your rocks in their bag. Because you're not carrying all your own rocks. I don't know why you'd carry rocks. Okay, your equipment. That's a better now. Yeah, you know, if you're not carrying all your equipment, somebody has to. Or the, fa- the, the, the party begins to break down. And so in, in hours of outpouring, I hope this makes sense. In hours of outpouring, some people, the way God touches them, is say, you know what? I'm taking your equipment out of my bag. I'm not going to carry your stuff anymore. I love you but I'm not gonna carry your stuff anymore. And other people are saying, man, I've not been pulling my weight. I need to step into some responsibility. And often what happens is one person's touched and still doesn't need, see the need to carry their own stuff, and the other person doesn't wanna give them back because it makes them feel more important. And working that out will determine whether we're able to keep the gains or whether it was just a good story about a great service we had years ago. So the personal encounter with God must translate into changed relationships. We've talked about it before. Let me, let's close with this. We've talked about this before, but I think we really need to drive this home. Where Jesus says that a spirit, if you drive a spirit out of a man, it will go to the dry places. It's gonna, the, the enemy doesn't like the wet places. He doesn't like where the spirit is moving. So he's going to jettison that situation until that person gets back into a dry place. And what does he do? He goes back and it says he looks in the window of that house to see if he can enter again. And if he can, he's going to recruit seven buddies and that person's going to end up worse off than in the beginning. That's what Jesus says, okay? So realize when you have a breakthrough, you displace the enemy. It may be overt deliverance, Okay, overtly, you go through deliverance and you might even manifest and, uh, you know, and all that stuff. But often, more commonly, there's always going to be an element. There's uh, not overt, but covert deliverance. There, the enemy is displaced relationally in your life, but he's going to come back and he's going to look in the windows of the house. The Greek word that Jesus uses for house is oikos, like the yogurt. That word means house, home, or household. Missiologists, those that do all the data for missionaries, often use that term oikos to refer to our spheres of relationship. And they'll they'll say it like this. Are you stewarding your oikos? How are you stewarding your influence in the earth through the spheres of relationships that you have? Are you keeping your faith to yourself? Or are you showing up in your family, 
in your neighborhood, in your friendships, in the workplace, and beginning to let the kingdom be expressed in your oikos. God wants to invade your oikos, and so does the enemy. And so what the enemy will do, he'll come when everybody calms down, okay? They're, they're calming down. They're getting a little drier. And he's, what's he going to do? He's going to look into the windows, the entry points of your relationships. And he's going to examine, is there a relationship that has been yet unaffected, that's still in an unhealthy way? And that will be his entry point to get back in and begin to try to take ground back in your life. And so when we talk about this subject, this is crucial for us when we get touched by God, realize relationships will change. A couple weeks ago, I had a young woman come up to me and she said, I'm in an unhealthy relationship. God touched her. She said, I'm in an unhealthy relationship. What do you think? She told me about it. I said, you're, you're reading it right. You're a wise woman. You need to get out of it. She came back a couple weeks later. I did it. It's, man, it's been hard because there was the pressure from the other end. But that's the mark of God's movement in someone's life. She was responding to the Spirit of God and courageously confronting a situation where there was great resistance and manipulation and guilt, but she was standing her ground. That's, the, that's what it takes to see the advancement of the kingdom in our life. Because in God, the ideal is that the enemy comes back and he's like, oh my goodness, I don't even recognize this. Is this the same house? They moved walls around. If I went and tried to get in, I'd be running into walls, banging my shins. I'm going to go back to some place that's easier to get in. They have totally redone that. There's security systems. This place is not easy to get into because the change has happened. That's why we'll say change is not change until those around you expect the new you to walk through the door. And it, until... As long as they're still expecting the old you to enter in, you haven't gone through real biblical change. Now, you may be serious as a heart attack in what God did in you, and you've set your course. And you may know it's real, and we're cheering you on, but don't expect anybody else, especially those that are resisting you, to be convinced of the change until they're convinced. And the way they'll be convinced is you stand your ground in love and say, I'm not going back. So, it is not good for a man, a woman, anybody to be alone. Because relationships are the way that God accesses our life and begins to transform us. It is essential. That's why we've got to be part of a church. And you can't do that by Zoom. Okay? Seriously, you can't do relationship by Zoom. There's a limitation. And I thank God for Zoom. I, I guess when I, I should do this, put it on the microphone. It, uh, you, can't, you can't relate in a digital world like that. Life is not a video game. We've got to have face-to-face -face encounters and rub shoulders and have relationship and not retreat from those because it's in that rubbing shoulders and interacting with people that God really begins to transform us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you for what you're doing. Lord, we thank you for relationships and Lord, we thank you for the irritations in our life. Those who are rubbing us wrong. Lord, help us to 
accept them as a gift from you. Don't bump your neighbor. Lord, we thank you. Often, the answer to our prayer is the irritating person that's in our sphere of influence. So Lord, we ask that you would give us kingdom value system and we'd begin to recognize what you're doing and we'd cooperate with it. Lord, we're asking that Heartland would be known not just for the outpouring of the Spirit, for great worship, but Lord, it would be known for there are healthy relationships there. That is a place of relational health. If you want to grow a strong family, get around those people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.